Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now, your inside look into the best of Vice. It's Wednesday, April 4th. I'm Chris Hurdy. Today, we're discussing a controversial new memorial to people who have died from prescription opioid overdoses and why critics find it demeaning. President Trump has announced that the White House will host a temporary memorial to people who have died from prescription opioid overdoses called Prescribed to Death. The memorial was created by an organization called the National Safety Council, and it consists of a wall depicting 22,000 faces engraved on white pills. But this design has been widely condemned as tone-deaf and offensive. Critics say it dehumanizes drug users and ignores those who have died from street drugs like heroin. Nonetheless, the exhibit will sit in President's Park in April. Here's Vice's Sophie Cases speaking with reporter and author Maya Salovitz on the story. Let's start with the National Safety Council, or the NSC, which is the organization that is creating this memorial. What do they do? What kinds of issues do they normally work on? And why are they choosing to take on this project? Sure. So they are basically a consumer safety organization, and they're focused on the very non-controversial agenda of things like making driving safer. Um, And they took this on because they see, quite rightly, uh, misuse of opioid prescriptions as a potential safety issue. I am not entirely sure they understood the complexities of of this issue. So while the idea of a memorial dedicated to those who have died because of an opioid overdose sounds like it could be a really moving and meaningful idea, this particular design is setting off red flags left and right. Can you talk about what people are specifically finding offensive or distasteful about this memorial? Well, if you can picture a memorial to the school shootings that printed the faces of the victims on guns, you will kind of imagine what has gone wrong here, because basically the faces of people who died of opioid overdoses are printed on pills. Now, when you think of memorials, typically you don't memorialize the way the person died. You don't have, you know, um, a cancer patient in their bed. You represent the life of the person. And so quite rightly, many families find it really offensive to have the life of their loved one reduced to a picture on a pill. The other issue is that they are only memorializing people who died of prescription opioid overdoses. So they're leaving out all of the people who died of heroin and of illegal fentanyl. So that's offensive in itself, along with the fact that the pills are white, sort of suggesting that only white victims who were innocently prescribed by doctors, not anybody who would recreationally use a drug, um, is worth remembering. And does that reflect a 
broader response to overdose deaths in America, does it represent a a general attitude that you see in this country? Yeah, I mean, addiction is tremendously stigmatized and it's impossible to disconnect the stigma associated with addiction with the racial aspects of the drug war, frankly. Our drug laws were not made by some government commission sitting down and saying, okay, these are the safest drugs. We will allow them for recreational use. Instead, we got our drug laws in a series of racist panics that really had very little to do with the harm associated with them. This is why marijuana is illegal and cigarettes and alcohol are legal. So the stigma really comes from this idea that drug users are these horrible degenerates who are, you know, dangerous minorities. And there's been different targets throughout the history, Chinese people with regards to opium, black people with regards to cocaine, uh, black people again with regards to crack, Mexicans and blacks and jazz musicians with regard to marijuana. So it's really like, you know, I mean, we have all these people coming out now and saying, oh, I'm not your typical addict. And when a white person says that, basically what they mean is I'm not black. And so we need to bring this subtext into the context so that we can deal with this problem better. We see people who are addicted to opioids as liars, cheats, thieves, violent people, manipulative people, all kinds of horrible things, a lot of which is associated with the fact that we have criminalized them. And until we can get beyond that and realize that a lot of our approaches to dealing with this problem are heavily moralized and heavily focused on the idea that, you know, people need to make amends and people need to take moral inventory and people, you know, have something like a character defect. There's something that's immoral about them for having developed this condition. That simply isn't true. I mean, it really is shocking, I have to say, that in 2018, this is the memorial someone is creating. Yeah. And I mean, to be fair, the National Safety Council does not focus on the safety of illegal drugs. So from their perspective, it might have been, you know, that's why they may have done this. But they should have thought of the larger context, which is that this is a highly stigmatized condition. You are reducing people to the object that killed them. And we have many, many, in fact, the majority of people who misuse prescription opioids were not legitimately prescribed them. And so this idea that this is different from the crack epidemic because like, oh, these people like innocently started taking drugs from their doctor. That is not what happened in the vast majority of cases. Can that happen? Yes, but it is quite rare. Can you tell us what does happen in the vast majority of cases and kind of give us a little bit of background on the role of prescription opioids in this larger epidemic? Sure. So basically, it is definitely true that drug companies, particularly Purdue Pharma, began advertising and promoting opioids for chronic pain and pushed a looser attitude towards prescribing in the 90s and and early 2000s. The thing is, most of the people that got in trouble as a result of that were people who took drugs out of somebody else's medicine cabinet. They got them from a family member or a friend. Uh, The National Household Survey on Drug Abuse looks at this regularly, and they typically find that 70 to 80% of the people, when asked what the source of their drugs were, 
it tends to be, I got it from a friend or a dealer or a medicine cabinet, but I did not get it directly from a doctor. And even the people who get it directly from a doctor, most addiction starts, 90% of all addiction starts in the teens and early 20s. So if you've gotten to your 40s when chronic pain conditions are much more common, without having an experience of addiction, whether it's alcoholism or illegal drug use, and if you've got to that age and you get exposed to opioids, your risk of becoming newly addicted is rare. On the other hand, there's lots of people who have a past of serious heavy drug use that probably was or could have been diagnosed as addiction who go to their doctor and they get prescribed these opioids and they don't recognize the risk. But the, the reality is that if you look at the studies of teenagers, you find that the biggest risk factor for getting addicted to prescription opioids is not getting a medical prescription, but using other drugs recreationally, and then using prescription opioids non-medically, usually from not your own prescription. The vast majority of, of people with addiction have either childhood trauma, mental illness, or both. And the reason people don't stop the kind of teenage rebellion use of drugs that the vast majority of Americans actually do, um, the people who get stuck are people in emotional pain of some sort. And we tend to think, oh, these are just selfish, evil, bad people who are just like constantly seeking pleasure. And while certainly there are some people like that, the vast majority of people with addiction are not like that, and they're really just trying to feel okay. And I think as a society, we don't understand, you know, well, if I feel comfortable in, in a particular setting, therefore everybody must feel comfortable. We don't understand how differently people tend to be wired. And adding on to that context, let's talk about President Trump, who is hosting this memorial at the White House what has he actually done legislatively or otherwise to address the opioid crisis? Uh, not very much is the short answer. You know, he's now proposing to and and Jeff Sessions is going along with let's execute drug dealers. Um, and this is cruel, stupid, unethical, immoral and ineffective. The countries that actually do that do not have less drug problems than countries that don't. And we've run an experiment over the last, you know, 50 years or so of what happens if you lock people up for sentences equivalent to murder for drug dealing. And what happens is you get mass incarceration and cheaper, more harmful drugs. You talked to a lot of people all of whom in the article were in some way or another offended by this memorial. Was there anyone you spoke to who thought, oh, you know, this is actually very meaningful to me? Um, I did not. And I'm sure some of the people who were actually memorialized on the some of the, the because the parents had to agree to have their loved one memorialized or somebody had to agree to it. And they do these little videos that on, in the online version, if you click on it, it's actually very moving. So some of those parents must have not thought it was a bad idea. Um, they did not. 
I did not hear from them. I may have had a selected uh, sample. But um, the thing that just sort of makes me sad about the whole thing is that there are a lot of really beautiful memorials to people with addiction that are online. There's one that basically represents the person, you know, uh, where they're from. And so then you click on the dot on the map and you see all these dots like all over the United States. And it, it visually represents the fact that this is everybody's problem. And it also has very uh, moving stories of people who died and how they were loved and what they were like in real life. And what you often hear is this was a super loving person. This person was really hardworking. They did everything they could to try to fight this. They did everything they could to, you know, support their families. They were people that were deeply cherished. You don't see this was a selfish person that was horrible to everybody. And, you know, we're glad he's dead. Now, obviously, very few people are going to put that on a memorial. But the thing is that, like, if you just read through, you know, five or 10 of these, they completely debunk the stereotypes about people with addiction being, you know, horrible, self-centered people who never did anything for anybody. So what are some things, just to, to end this off, what are some things that people are doing outside of this missed opportunity of a memorial to destigmatize drug use and decriminalize drug use and, and kind of change that narrative? Yeah, well, I've, I've actually just spent um, a couple of days in, in Philadelphia where people are working to create a safe consumption space for people who use drugs. And I've just met so many people who go out and work with people who are the most marginalized. I mean, they're literally living on a trash heap near a pile of mud and they go out there and they bring them clean needles. Um, they bring food, they bring water, um, they bring offers of uh, shelter and really do amazing work recognizing that people with addiction are people and they have very complex lives and very complicated problems. And, you know, you listen to their stories and you hear the trauma and the you know, nobody wants to be living on a trash pile, quite literally. And you talk to people who are doing that and they are smart and kind and, you know, seem like anybody else. And you have to realize that, you know, this is a disease. This is a sickness. Um, nobody chooses that life. And, the you know, the way we've just chosen to, you know, throw such people away and see them as, as you know, pills or needles, you know, is just horrifying. But I have to say, like going out on the streets with some of the people and just talking to them, it really does give me hope because these are really great people. And I might mention that a lot of the people who are doing this work are people in recovery. To read Maya Solovitz's full article, go to tonic.vice.com. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. And tune in again on Friday for another Vice Guide to Right Now.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.